Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, as Greg Jarrett was just mentioning, the dollar is showing strength, at least against the Japanese yen right now, 110.40. Also strength against the pound sterling at 131.53. Here to tell us more about exchange rates and the U.S. dollar is Dr. Wynn Thin, Global Head of Emerging Markets FX for Brown Brothers Harriman. Uh, Wynn Thin, thanks very much for being with us. The strength of the U.S. dollar, uh, is that going to continue against emerging market uh, currencies such as Mexico and Brazil, as well as uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, and so on? Uh, yes. Well, first of all, thanks, thanks uh, for having me. It's always a pleasure. Um, yes. Uh, I look for continued EM weakness. Um, it's for a variety of reasons. You know, obviously, the big story is, is higher U.S. rates. But I think what's really given this, uh, this last leg um, is lower in the EM push is the, is the uh, rising trade tensions. You know, it, Strong global growth, strong global trade flows are, are really bullish for EM. And with all the risks that are out there, all the tit-for-tat um, uncertainty about where, where the U.S. really stands, that's all hurting the um, emerging markets. Uh, so, yes, uh, it's a broad-based dollar rally. It's not just against the, the, the EM. Uh, it's also been rallying against the majors. So um, that broad-based rally is really being driven by the U.S. Uh, interest rate yeah. outlook. So, when you know, one thing that I'm struck by is uh, the strengthening dollar has been a trend for uh, many weeks now, and people have been adjusting to that. The, de- the rapid depreciation of the Chinese yuan, however, seems to be picking up speed. It's been the biggest weekly drop since 2015 uh, in that currency. And, and you just have to wonder, you know, is this uh, an active devaluation by the Chinese government, or does this signal further and, and, and rapidly deteriorating outlook for the Chinese economy? Well, I think it's uh, two things. It's still sort of early on, so I don't want to sound the alarm bells. It's, it's certainly uh, you know, raising eyebrows, the, the speed of the move this week. But what I've, I've noted and what I've been telling our clients is that uh, this is a short period of, of yuan underperformance. It follows a long extended period of yuan outperformance. And while the rest of EM was selling off in, uh, throughout most of Q2, um, the Chinese yuan was really holding up pretty well. It was um, you know, almost uh, unchanged. I would say a year to date, if you look at your WCRS page, yeah. uh, the Chinese uh, yuan is, is uh, the fifth best uh, performing currency. It's down only 1.5% against the dollar year to date. That compares to minus 32% for Arsene Peso, minus 17.5% for Turkey. Right. So I just want to keep things sort of in, in perspective. The other thing I would also add is if you look at China's real effective exchange rate, that is just for the trade inflation, et cetera. Um, it's done at the BIS. You look on your, uh, on your page, you carry that, BIS, BCNR index. Um, it's, it's been rising this past year, and that's because the, the yuan has been outperforming. Uh, that is, is uh, its trading partners, the currencies of its trading partners have been weakening uh, much more than yuan. And so the, in real effective terms, the yuan has actually been appreciating. So Again, just things to sort of think about. You know, I know that you know yeah. you see these headlines, yes. but you know, and you have to take a sort of longer view. That uh, and look, remember, just have to also remind everyone there. In 2015, the last time China shocked the markets with devaluation, it ended up having to contend with the massive capital outflows uh, out of China, 
uh, and it really roils capital markets. I don't think that's something they want to do right now. So for now, right. I think it's just sort of a regular adjustment. Well, I mean, to talk about some of those headlines, I just want to think, give you one of them. China think tank warns of financial panic risk in leaked note. I mean, there was a leaked uh, report by a Chinese government-backed think tank talking about how with the rising defaults, with the trade tensions, liquidity shortages, China's looking pretty shaky right now. What do you make of that? Well, China, like the rest of EM, is is, is struggling um, with uh, a global environment that's that's not as friendly as it used to be. Of course, China has its own domestic issues with the banking sector, uh, financial sector. I totally agree with that. My base case has always been that 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 it will muddle through, and I think that and the reason I uh, that's one of the main reasons I, I feel that a devaluation is unlikely is that's just going to add just more uncertainty to the mix. Um, they really in, in times of uncertainty, I think. In general, the Chinese policymakers seem to favor uh, stability, or at least the appearance of stability. And I think that would be sort of pushing the panic button uh, if they were to devalue now. So, um, you know, again, you've got to keep in mind this, but, you know, a lot of people have been calling for disaster in, for in China for the last 10, 20 years. And, you know, continue to muddle through, and that, that's, that's still my base case. Winston, give you about 20 seconds. If emerging market currencies continue to weaken against the U.S. dollar, all things being equal, isn't that going to be better for their exports? Uh, it's better for their exports, yes. Um, but again, it's uh, for instance, a lot of these countries have taken out a lot of external debt in dollars, so it becomes much more uh, onerous to, to repay that and finance that external debt. So there's pros and cons. Um, you know, to me, I think uh, the emerging markets just prefer a, a stable global environment, free trade. The currencies, you know, rise, the currencies fall. But I think uh, the policymakers in the end would just like some clarity out of the U.S. They'd like the U.S. to step back from uh, this, the, this trade war talk. Um, and, you know, this is the currencies will take care of themselves. Dr. Winthin, thank you so much for being with us. Dr. Winthin, Global Head of Emerging Markets and Effects at Brown Brothers Harriman coming to us uh, in New York. And some, some good insight and, and good perspective when people start to uh, wring their hands over this really rapid devaluation of the UN, given the fact that it has appreciated uh, for the most part in recent months. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved GW Pharmaceuticals treatment for two rare forms of childhood epilepsy. Now, the treatment, it's a liquid. It's made from a compound in the marijuana plant. And to tell us more about this, we've got the chief executive of GW Pharmaceuticals, Justin Gover. Justin, thank you very much for being with us. Tell us about this treatment, and uh, is it Epidiolex or Epidiolex? I beg your pardon. That's for correct. It's Epidiolex. So thank you very much for having me on your show. Uh, yes, the treatment is called Epidiolex. It is uh, made from uh, a molecule called cannabidiol, which is a part of the cannabis plant that does not make you high. So it's a purified um uh, uh, cannabidiol formulation administered to children in the form of an oral solution. Uh, we uh, have developed this treatment uh, within the field of childhood onset epilepsy, um, uh, conducted three 
controlled clinical trials published in leading medical journals and obviously delighted earlier this week that the FDA has approved this medication. Um, the types of conditions that we treat, these two examples um, of, that are called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and Trevet syndrome, are two of the most difficult forms of epilepsy to treat, um, often uh, uh, commencing in very early childhood, characterized by seizures that tend not to respond to other anti-epileptic drugs. So it's a real breakthrough, the first medicine approved by FDA derived from the cannabis plant and the first in a new type of anti-epileptic drug. So uh, I, I see that the Drug Enforcement Administration has yet to reclassify this form of cannabis and that it has to do so before it can be put to market. Can you give us a sense of how long that could take and uh, what the outreach has been like there? Yes, yeah, so it's important to say that this is not a political issue. It's very much a procedural one that follows the FDA's approval. So um, un under the rate relevant regulations, the, the DEA has up to 90 days um, uh, to what is termed reschedule uh, this product, Epidiolex, so that it can be prescribed by physicians and available through pharmacies. So um, the the FDA will have made a recommendation to the DEA uh, as to the, the schedule which they believe um, Epidiolex should be placed into. The DEA will currently be reviewing uh, that recommendation and will rule on that within a 90-day period. So what that means commercially is that the product uh, will be available, we believe, in the early fall of this year. Could this, uh, could this drug be used to treat other uh, types of conditions? Well, our focus for Epidiolex has very much been in within the epilepsy arena and, and specifically within these two forms of childhood epilepsy. Um, I think it's fair to say that our focus for future development of this product um, falls within the epilepsy arena. So there are several other forms of epilepsy, particularly those in childhood, um, which some are suffer sim where we have similar situations with regard to seizures that are difficult to control. So there really continues to be an unmet need within the field of epilepsy, and our focus remains dedicated towards addressing those patient needs. I mean, more broadly, uh, I would say that there are um, within the cannabis plant and within our own pipeline, a range of other molecules, uh, which we call cannabinoids, that may not be epidiolex, but may be different molecules within the plant that may well have applications in other disease areas. And I, I certainly can provide a few examples. Well, but Justin, before you get into that, I think that uh, one reason why we found this so particular in, particularly interesting is because uh, the FDA has been slow to approve medications that are based on cannabis or marijuana. And I'm wondering, you know, you've been in the industry, the pharmaceutical industry for nearly two decades. Was the process of getting this drug approved different when it comes to dealing with the FDA? Well, firstly, I would say, I think, I mean, the FDA will be the first uh, agency in the world to have approved Epidiolex. So I, 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 I'm not sure I would say that they've been slow. In fact, I think this review timeline has been rapid. And the engagement that we've had with FDA over the last five years as we've developed this medicine has been very constructive indeed. So I think where I think, uh, and you saw statements from FDA early, early in this week, which I think ring true with us, which is when, when it comes to the rigors of science, when it comes to uh, looking at the cannabis plant 
and identifying molecules from it that may be developed as prescription medications. Um, you know, the FDA are willing to assess and potentially approve those kinds of medications and engage constructively. I think what they have been pointing out is that that's a different uh, process and a different way of, of approaching patients' uh, treatment uh, to, um, you know, marijuana per se. So I think uh, it, what, it, what this approval does do is it, it, it very much signals the fact that if one looks at cannabis and tries to apply uh, reg modern pharmaceutical principles to components of the cannabis plant, that FDA um, will and, and have shown themselves to engage very constructively with industry. Thank you so much for being with us. Justin Gover, chief executive of GW Pharmaceuticals, uh, based in California, coming to us after having their drug uh, based uh, aimed at curing epilepsy approved by the FDA. Congratulations. Our next guest has a fascinating story and he oversees a fascinating company. So I'm very glad to bring in Abe Ankuma. He's chief executive and co-founder of Nyansa, which is based in San Francisco, but he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Abe, uh, your company is uh, pretty, pretty significant and it does business with a lot of the uh, biggest companies out there. But I want to start with your story because you hadn't even seen a computer uh, when you were growing up in Ghana. Uh, before arriving in the U.S. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, so I grew up in Ghana, as you mentioned. I went to high school in Ghana, but moved to the United States for college. And so I went to college at Caltech in uh, Southern California, where I, without seeing a computer, I did the crazy thing of deciding to major in computer science and electrical engineering. And so, so, and so far, it's worked out great. <laughs> Yeah, that's what everybody does, right? You know, you don't know, you don't have a computer growing up, and you decide computer technology is where it's at. Well, and you go to Caltech, and then you go to Harvard Business School, and then you become a chief executive of a tech company. Yeah, right. That's the, no no stumbling blocks there, right? No. There no. you go. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, how you decided that uh, founding Nyansa that this company serves a need. What did you see out there, and what caused you to think? I can solve this problem. For sure. So, so I started Nyansa, first of all, with um, a group of very talented um, other individuals as well. Um, I have two other co-founders, um, Dan and Anand. Both immigrants. Um, both immigrants, um, a couple of MIT PhDs. The problem that we saw um, was basically sort of a melding of what's happening within large businesses today, right? Within large businesses today, there is a an untapped opportunity to actually make sense of the data that's flowing freely on their networks. Today, data is the new oil. And what we do is we enable our customers actually make sense of the data on their networks to solve a number of different business problems. One of the core business problems we allow them to use the data for is around user experience and performance management. In the world where Things are growing from the types and diversity of devices connecting to their networks and the growth of IoT devices. A lot of customers have the ability to harness and generate tremendous new business value 
on the data based on your networks. Think about what we do as being akin to what Google does with websites, right? Google allows you to make sense out of your websites. Google allows you to make sense out of the data <clears throat> that um, your people are searching on the internet for. We're doing something similar with the data on computer networks. I don't think, though, of Google search as having artificial intelligence sort of algorithms trying to parse out and determine large codes in the same way. I mean, perhaps that is the case. But when you're talking, I wonder how important it is to have some sort of intelligence in analyzing the data for, say, an Uber uh, or what are the other companies you work with? Yeah. So, so wh whether it's... Um Uber leveraging our technology for driving user experience on their computer networks, whether it is large universities, um, whether it's Stanford, whether it's USC, whether it's Notre Dame, leveraging our technology to generate insights for the IT teams to better support the students and the end users, whether it's a large global manufacturing organization, leveraging the data on their networks in order to effectively um, um, effect, um, um, drive the manufacturing process because of the devices on themselves. Big data, machine learning, AI is all about making. It's, it allows us. It allows our customers to see the invisible. It allows our customers to make sense of invisible of what's happening on their networks by bringing you know all this disparate, unstructured data, making sense of it to solve different business problems. One of those could be performance. Another one could be, um, you know, improving the manufacturing process. Let's say I'm the Atlanta Braves. Mm -hmm. I come to you, I say, I need help. You tell me, great, then tell people the story. Yeah, so, so you know, whether it's the Atlanta Braves, whether it's a large public venue that has lots and lots of users leveraging the network, what we allow a company like the Atlanta Braves to do is to actually ask questions out of the data that's on their networks, right? Ask questions about, hey, for this particular game or for this particular time on the network, what were people actually doing all in an anonymized fashion, right? And so one of the things with big data and data science is while there's a fair bit of insights to glean out of that data, companies that enable that data transformation also have a big responsibility in terms of respecting sort of the privacy of the users on the networks. And so for Atlanta Braves, we give them the tools in order to sort of ask questions of their networks and also give a world-class user experience off for their fans. Well done. Thanks very much for being with us and uh, giving us a look inside the world of analyzing data on internet systems that are internet networks that are uh, based inside of corporations. Much appreciated. Abe Ankamu. Uh, Ankuma, he is the chief executive and the co-founder of uh, Nyanza, joining us here in our 1130 studios. I do want to just uh, get a, a note here in on emerging markets because the uh, MSCI, Emerging Markets Currency Index, is now dropping today uh, for the biggest one-day drop. It's the biggest since May, uh, March of last year. And uh, our next guest has a really interesting theory as to why. Dr. Brendan Brown joins us now, Chief Economist and Head of Economic Research at Mitsubishi UFJ Securities. Dr. Brown, so how do you interpret the weakness we've seen in emerging markets assets? I interpret the emerging markets market weakness as being a first sign of a credit cycle 
turning globally. And you have to remember that the emerging markets have been the absolute focal point of the credit inflation in this cycle. It's been where the hunt for yield has been at its greatest and where the various forms of financial engineering and leverage have been at their greatest. Okay, so uh, this could be sort of the canary in the coal mine. Definitely more than a canary in the coal mine. I mean, the emerging market economies these days, uh, PPP exchange rates account for 60% of world GDP. So so this was this could actually uh, signal a, a real turning point. I'm just wondering how this relates to uh, monetary policies, which, yes, the U.S. is tightening, um, but the ECB is still holding on. So, Well, I would make a general observation that monetary normalization at this point is a fiction. Even in the U.S., we have um, interest rates well below the rate of inflation negative real interest rates. So from a point of view of money supply, from a central bank side of the equation, there is really no normalization taking place. It may be a bit less in the US than elsewhere, but monetary policy is still set at a pretty inflationary dial. But there's another another dynamic in monetary policy, and that's what's happening on the credit side. You can have the central bank still with their foot down on the accelerator, but if the credit cycle is turning, the accelerator doesn't work so well and may even actually not work at some point. And I think that's where we're approaching. Then, uh, okay, I'm just going to do a, a brief list of, you know, supposedly the problems in the world, right? Okay, so you've got uh, the Brexit negotiations between the UK and the European Union. They seem to be a mess. You have the uh, political situation in Italy and the potential for some kind of uh, challenge to the European Union and the Euro and Angela Merkel in Germany facing political uh, pressure. Um, you had a change of government in Spain recently. Uh, you have uh, the issues related to Venezuela and oil politics in the Middle East. I raise all of the and trade wars in the United States and NAFTA and China. I raise all these things at the same time. We haven't seen a big sell-off in uh, stock prices, and I'm wondering why. Well, stock prices uh, are not where this all starts. I mean, yes, we can all talk about the bubble in the fangs or whatever, but um, I I think the core of the asset inflation process is in the credit markets. It's in the irrational strategies we see for leverage. It's in the financial engineering, which camouflages the leverage. And that's that's where the irrational forces are. By the by, you get asset prices, which may be too high, but that's not where the unwinding starts. So it may it may unwind at any time. I think just to take your points about Europe, the key point to watch there is that the, the Merkel era is coming to an end. And Germany is almost certainly, although nothing certain in politics, but is going to swing towards the right, away from the centre, euro centre, and, and and that presents a big change in the set of opportunities for Italy on the one hand, and also for the UK. And my view on the UK and Brexit is that everyone will remain quiet amongst the Brexiteers in the UK until Britain's actually out of the door next March. But that's when the fun starts. But the fun will start, um, hopefully, when Merkel is also going out of the door quite soon. So, you know, you're saying that the, uh, the the asset inflation that's really most important is in the credit markets or where you need to really focus. Um, a lot of people have been looking to the U.S. high-yield bond market as the canary and the coal mine of cracks forming in credit markets globally. And you just really haven't seen it. 
Why? Well, I would say there's two points there. Um, clearly, in the U.S. market, high yield is related to the price of equity. So if you're still in the middle of a real bull market in equities, that sort of keeps the high yield market up. The second point, which is more strange, is well, well, not so strange, is that we had that volatility sell-off in February, but volatility is a way back down again. I there is a key mathematical relationship, of course, which every quant will tell you between rising volatility and the price of high yield bonds. So uh, that that's an accident waiting to happen at some point in the future, but it's not happened yet. So I think the key pressures have been on the emerging markets rather than on the U.S. high yield credit market. So do you think that people who are saying now is a time to pick up extra yield, go into emerging markets, are fooling themselves and that there's more pain ahead? Ab- absolutely. I, I think the emerging market situation is the center of the asset price deflation when it comes and it almost certainly will go further. The question is how much contagion is going to be onto other uh, asset inflated markets. Give you about 30 seconds. Trade wars and currency wars. Haven't heard much about currency wars, have we? Which is sort of a big puzzle because if you were uh, advising President Trump, you would think a big point would now be being made about the manipulation of currencies by Germany and Japan. After all, Japan sticking long-term interest rates at zero with the economy at overheating, and Germany and ECB chief Draghi, who's fully backed by Bundesbank and Chancellor Merkel, keeping rates negative for another 18 months despite the German economy in boom. What greater currency manipulation can you have? So it's very strange that this isn't really a focal point of U.S. trade negotiations. Thank you very much. Dr. Brendan Brown is the chief economist and head of economic research for Mitsubishi UFJ Securities. Also the author of The Global Monetary Plague, Asset Price Inflation and Federal Reserve Quantitative Easing. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.